From Boise, Idaho, and Idaho Education News, this is Extra Credit, your weekly podcast looking at education policy and education politics. I'm Kevin Richard. Clark Corbin is still on vacation. He is still in the Himalayas, but we still have a lot to get to this week. I'll be sitting down with our Devin Botkin and Sammy Edge. They're going to talk about a series that they completed this week, looking at high-performing, high-poverty schools across the West. But first, a quick look at this week's headlines. On Monday, Governor Brad Little's Education Task Force met for the first time, and it quickly became apparent that this task force won't look exactly like its predecessor, then-Governor Butch Otter's task force that met in 2013. For one thing, Governor Little's task force is on a much tighter timetable. Little wants recommendations in hand by November. That's a five-month turnaround. By comparison, The Otter Task Force met for about eight months before issuing its recommendations. And speaking of those recommendations, the Otter Task Force came up with 20 recommendations across a wide spectrum of education topics. Governor Little wants five or six recommendations, and he wants them focused on two key areas, literacy and college and career readiness. I have in-depth coverage from Monday's task force meeting, and you can check that out at idoednews.org. In some political news from this week, Former State Superintendent Tom Luna is seeking the position of State Republican Party Chair. Nathan Brown from the Idaho Falls Post-Register first reported on this news last week. And he reported on an email that Luna sent to members of the Republican Central Committee in which Luna talked about his eight years as superintendent, saying that he, quote, took on the strongest liberal special interest groups in the country, end quote, during his time as State Superintendent. You'll recall that Luna was elected state superintendent in 2006, re-elected in 2010. In 2012, voters overwhelmingly overturned Luna's three education laws, known as Propositions 1, 2, and 3, or known as the Luna Laws by critics, or known as Students Come First by Luna and his supporters. Luna did not seek re-election as state superintendent in 2014. The Republican Central Committee will elect a new chairman on June 29th. In other headlines from this week, two new national rankings came out on school finance, and in both cases, the news was not good for Idaho. First, the Pew Charitable Trusts came out with a study on Tuesday looking at state spending in the wake of the Great Recession of nearly a decade ago, and found that in many cases, and in many states, spending has not fully recovered. The group looked at per-pupil spending, adjusted it for inflation, and ran the numbers from 2008 to 2016, and what they found was that In Idaho, per-pupil spending has decreased by 11% over that time period, while increasing by 2% nationally. Adjusted for inflation, Idaho's per-student spending on higher education has also decreased since 2008. I have all the numbers on my blog at idahoednews.org. And then, on Wednesday, Education Week ranked Idaho dead last in the nation in terms of overall school finance. Idaho ranked third from the bottom nationally in terms of how much it spends on education, and ranked fourth from the bottom nationally in how it spends its money in terms of funding equity. This made Idaho an outlier in the Education Week study. States that tend to spend a lot of money on education tend to score lower in equity, and vice versa. Details on my blog at idahoednews.org. The funding equity issue dovetails into our big project this week, looking at high-poverty schools, and how some high-poverty schools break a chronic trend on school performance. 
Our Devin Bodkin was the lead writer on this series. He went across the West looking at high-performing, high-poverty schools, and we sit down to talk to him about what he found. A lot's been written and said over the years about poverty in schools and the connection between poverty and school performance. You tried to take a little bit different approach to covering the issue this time. Uh, walk us through that. Yeah, so we wanted to do more than just focus on the problem, Kevin. And uh, through a grant from Solutions uh, Journalism Network there in New York, we were able to get some money to um, find some schools that are high poverty, yet still outperform state averages on standardized tests and other performance indicators. And so uh, Solutions Journalism gave us some money to do that. We were able to travel to three different states. Uh, we found a school in Nevada. We found one in Montana. And we found one in Washington. And we also found one in Idaho that we right. went to. Right. And I, I want to talk more about the schools that you went to in, in Nevada and Montana and Idaho. But first, talk to me about the metrics here of how you identified the schools that we looked at. And you, know, you, you consulted with some folks who have been studying poverty in, in schools and the, the connection between poverty and performance for a long time. So tell us a little bit about uh, Bill Parrott and Kathleen Budge and their role in this project. Right, I think that's something that actually helped us get the get the funding. We're fortunate enough uh, to know uh, Bill Parrott and Kathleen Budge, who are experts on on student poverty. They are researchers. They they're right there at Boise State University, and uh, we have at Ed News uh, a bit of history with them. Mm -hmm. uh, we used to work right in the in the same. They were in the same office with us for. I think a, a couple years at least, right? Right, right. At our launch, we were housed under Boise State University, and we were working in the same wing with with Bill Parrott and Kathleen Budge and their uh, in their center for you know for school policy. So you know we have a you know a longstanding you know, professional connection. We're we're a little bit detached from them, but we we go back to our our origins. Uh, you, know, you know, talking to Bill Parrott and Kathleen Budge formally and informally about these issues. Right. And they're not only experts on student poverty, they take it a step further and they've written a book on this issue where they they know that the problem exists, just like we know that the problem exists. There's years and years of research to support it, that, that students who experience poverty on average just don't perform at the same level as their you know non-disadvantaged peers. But they take it a step further by finding schools across the country that do a good job in closing that gap and helping all students perform at or above state averages. And, and they, so we work, we work closely with them to, to identify um, three of these schools that we went and visited. And it was looking at two analytics, uh, free and reduced lunch eligibility, which we use all the time, which education writers and education professionals use all the time as a metric to measure poverty, but then test scores. So you're you're looking for schools with high poverty, but also high performance, right? That's that's it. Yes, those two things. Schools that simultaneously meet those two things, and parrots, uh, uh, Bill, Bill and Kathleen's, um, their their framework is basically seventy percent free and reduced lunch uh, qualification at the. Uh, 
elementary level and then uh, 60% at the junior high and high school level. And to put that in the context, for Idaho, the overall free and reduced lunch eligibility rate is about 50%. So when we're talking about a 70% or 60%, pretty significant uh, number above the state average. Right, and that number also helps us understand, you know, the, the the scope of the problem here too. That this is a lot of students who meet that metric in Idaho, Kevin, and so it's a big it's a big issue. During the course of our reporting, um, you know, I had several experts and and education stakeholders say that they felt for years that this is the biggest challenge facing mm-hmm. education in Idaho because so many kids meet that metric, and poverty is a real thing in this state. Yeah. Let's talk now a little bit about the schools that you visited. And I'm going to start in Las Vegas. Uh, You visited a high school that's dealing with high poverty, but they've had high performance with a focus on career technical education. Uh, Explain to me how that's working and, and what they're doing. Right. So this was the first school that I visited, and it was fascinating to go in there. They gave me a uh, they gave me a complete tour of the school. And the school offers career technical education. And so students who get in, it, it is a school of choice. We should, mm-hmm. we should it's a magnet it. school, right? Right. But it's located in a high poverty area in Las Vegas, in East Las Vegas, which is one of the poorest areas in that city. And so they allow students in that area to to try to get into the school. There's a lottery like you'd see in some of our charter schools here in Idaho. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so there is that mechanism, but it's still a high poverty school. The The, um, the free and reduced meals population is just under 70% there. Okay. And so you, a lot of kids in poverty. But what they've done is identified areas where kids can start in on a career path. And there's eight areas. Folks would have to look at the story um, to see those areas. Mm-hmm. But construction management to to education they have a they have a small uh, education school within that larger school and so the idea is to let these kids find something that they're interested in and these are jobs that are calculated to help pull them out of poverty if they can get jobs in these careers the idea is that this is directly a remedy for getting these kids out of into a better situation than what they grew up in. Mm-hmm. And so the kids can choose an area of focus and they also have their core academic uh, you know, framework. They have to do their math classes. They have to do their English classes. But uh, they, the school feels that if they can get these kids into a program that they're interested in and that they can have some real leg room to, to explore and grow within, that they'll do better in those other areas. And the test scores that we looked at at the schools and the other indicators, uh, everything from attendance to college go-on rates, they are beating uh, the state averages across the board. And, and so it's something that, that they really feel is, is helping these kids down there. And, and that's what's interesting to me about this, Devin, is that you know we've written a lot about CTE and we've written a lot about Idaho's struggle to get more high school students to continue their education, whether that's college or a professional certificate through a CTE route. And it seems like a lot of what we've talked about in Idaho is this emphasis on trying to increase post-secondary completion rates and and focus on outcomes beyond high school. What you found in Las Vegas is that CTE is also a vehicle 
to create a higher performing high school because these students are also performing better in the basics of high school curriculum. Right, and I came across a Brookings Institute study, Brookings Institute study, that basically said that they took a broader look at some of these CTE schools, and that was one of their main conclusions at the end of the study is that it does do that. It, it's a good the the administrator at this school. Her name's Darlene Delgado. She kept referring to it as the hook. She said that these programs are the hook to get kids more engaged in the broader spectrum of the of the the curriculum of, of everything else. And they do other things too, Kevin. I mean, it's a great CTE school. It was, it's nationally recognized. In fact, in 2018, it was the CTE school of the year um, by, the, by a, a national measure. Um, and, and so they, but there's that heavy emphasis on CTE, but they do other things. One thing that was interesting at that school too is they do have a high percentage of Latino students. The majority of the students at the school are Latino. And the school also said that beyond the CTE, they feel that their their effort in hiring teachers who are also Latino who mm-hmm. can right. they feel who can empathize with the students' situation culturally and economically that 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 connection really forges a bond between the students of the school and and that was the other thing that uh, that Darlene pointed to when I went down there so it's not just the CTE although that's a huge that's that's the hook as she said and that's. You know, a goal for a lot of Idaho schools, I would imagine, to try to get uh, teachers who can empathize with the life experience of students, especially uh, when you think about communities that have a, a, a high uh, Latino student population. But recruiting and retaining those teachers, that's a real struggle. I mean, that's a real challenge to try to you know, find those teachers and keep them in the classroom. Right. That is, yes, especially as you get into some of these rural, more rural districts. I think you're right on there. Okay, so from the shadow of the Strip in Las Vegas, you, you went to the, the shadow of Glacier National Park. You went to Kalispell, Montana, and you looked at a school um, with, and I thought this was really interesting and, and really uh, relevant to Idaho, uh, this school's emphasis on, on literacy. Mm-hmm. Yes, it's, it's central to everything that they do at, at the school there. And now we're talking about a grade school as opposed to a high school. Yes, this is a K-5 school, Peterson Elementary. It's in Kalispell, Montana, right up there, like you said, close to the close to the Canadian border. And it is. It's all about literacy, and they've they've had a they've just put a lot into that. And the first thing that they do, there's really two things that they do, Kevin. They have an expert that they they've hired um, to come in and work with a team of teachers at every grade level and that's to get the teachers on the same page as far as construction instruction goes mm-hmm. uh, in, in english and uh, reading and writing and so these teachers are kind of the core they call them the dream team and they meet regularly every month and to, to discuss challenges and uh, techniques and what's working and what's not working and then that core of teachers go back to the other teachers on their individual grade levels to make sure that they're aligning the curriculum and a lot of the practices, they you know they would vertically, if you will, across all the grade right. levels and horizontally across the same grade level. So that's the first thing that they that they do is they take they want to get these best practices in reading and writing out to all teachers and proven techniques. And so it really kind of starts there. And then one of the other 
really interesting things that they do that they pointed to. You know, when I went into these schools, that was my my first question is, you know, you I'd point out their high test scores, I'd point out their high poverty, and I'd say, what are you doing? What do you? How do you attribute your high performance? What are you attributing your high performance to? And the other thing that they pointed to was individualized and small group instruction. And you'd have to read the story to, to get a real picture of this. Um, again, we're talking about the school in Montana, Peterson Elementary School. But what they do is they break students up, they test them first of all on where they're at in terms of reading and writing. And then they break those break students up and put them into groups um, of students with similar capabilities. And, and, and you're talking about some really small groups too. I mean, when you're talking about students that are behind in reading in this school, they're in a group of maybe four or five students, whereas the rest of the students who are at or maybe ahead of grade level, they're in a larger group of maybe 20 or 25 students. So we're talking about real small, intense, uh, you know, small group education. Yeah, you nailed it on the head. Uh, they, the, the more need for remediation, the smaller the group for the student, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. And so it's, it's a form of equity, really, where they're giving um, not just an opportunity for a kid to work in a smaller group, but they also add extra help to those students in the form of, of uh, uh, paraprofessionals. So those smaller groups that have struggling readers and struggling writers get the added help of another educator to watch them, to work with them, to help the teacher. And so they're just getting that added resource, which you know experts like uh, Bill Parrott and Kathleen Budge say is crucial. They, they, they constantly go back to that equity and giving the kids what they need who need it, it, it giving them a little bit more. So it feels like a school like Peterson is potentially it provides a lesson to Idaho. I mean, you know, the state has a new reading test that's designed to help teachers better identify students who are falling behind or, or are behind or at risk so that you can, you know, design some interventions and, you know, work more intensively with students who need that help. You've got a governor who has put more money into literacy interventions and has made that a top priority of, of his administration, maybe on all issues, not just education issues. I mean, you know, that's a big issue for, for Governor Little. So what's happening in Kalispell is a lesson and also a cautionary tale, though, too. I mean, in your story, you talked about how even the teachers are a little bit concerned that how is this affecting students on the other end of the, the okay. spectrum? Yes, we tried to do that in every story, and, and um, we wanted to make sure that we outlined some of the challenges that these schools had. And they'll tell you, yes, there are talent, there are challenges, and that was the challenge there. Uh, a couple teachers said, you know, I got to remember here that I have students who are advanced too, mm -hmm. and the emphasis is so great to help these these economically disadvantaged students because we're a high poverty school. But we also have those kids here, and so they would tell me that they had to constantly remember that they needed to, to strike that balance and not forget to push the kids who are performing at the other end of the, the, the spectrum in a good way. Let's talk about the school in Idaho that you spotlighted. Uh, and this is the Murtaugh School District, very small district. Uh, many of our listeners have probably never really, you know, done much beyond maybe driving past the exit for Murtaugh. Right. 
tell us a little bit about Murtaugh, about the community, but also about their their emphasis and their approach to education and, and how they've tried to break this cycle. Right. So if you stand uh, at the front doors of uh, Murtaugh, which is a K through 12 school, they consolidated all their schools a few years ago uh, in order to use some grant funding uh, across the board. They didn't want this money that they got in a grant to just go to one of the schools. So they consolidated into one school. But if you stand at the front door of those schools, that school, you can, you just see potato fields. <laughs> it's, it's in this sea of potato fields. So it's highly rural it's agricultural and so uh, in many in many districts like that in idaho you're going to get that diversity you have a lot of um uh, latino students in that district and so the challenge is 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 there's a big challenge for them there uh, they have not only the poverty challenge but the uh the many students coming in that are that are learning english uh, mm-hmm. there in the school and so uh, but the, the two things there, when I went to Murtaugh and I talked to them, they pointed to two things. Uh, they pointed to other things, but two main things were a math program. I was actually quite surprised to learn about this. They've taken advantage of a math program that's provided by the state where experts uh, work with the schools and with teachers to improve math instruction. And they've there's three levels um, of intensity that schools can participate. And Murtaugh p- participates on a level three, which is the highest level of participation. And so regularly throughout the school year, math teachers in all grades are meeting with an expert from the state who comes in. And it's not just that expert. Teams come into the schools and these are other teachers from other schools outside the district that are also participating in these programs. They're called regional math centers Mm -hmm. and other teachers come in and they will watch a teacher do a math lesson and the teachers just observe and the expert from the state just observes and then afterward they go into a room and they just talk about it and they write down you know where students what went well where students may have gotten lost where students may have gotten sidetracked and then they talk about how to improve those things and they come up with plans to how to how to improve them and then they do it again and when i talked to the superintendent there in murtaugh she said this has helped us so much and not only because they're at a level three so they're participating in this program pretty heavily but she said it's also an advantage of the school because they're a small school and it's easy she said she feels it's it's easier for them to get those best practices implemented vertically in, in throughout all grades because oftentimes there's just one teacher in each grade and so it's she said it's just a good school for this program to really take root and she's noticed lots of improvements in, in the math in terms of math since they've started doing this a couple years ago. And you talk about the integration through all grades because that's been an ongoing issue in Idaho, regardless of the demographics of a school. I mean, in the big picture, statewide, math has been a struggle, especially as students get into high school. Those those math scores have have flatlined or stagnated when you get to high school. Right, and I think that's one of the reasons the state rolled out this this big program because you know they they've seen that, and it's clear when, as you know as well as anyone, Kevin, uh, what you just said. I mean, this their the math scores are you know that's the area of uh, where where so many kids struggle for sure. 
couple things that Murtaugh is doing that kind of jumped out at me is uh, all day kindergarten and also pre-K. Right. And, and when we talk about, you can't really talk about this issue in Idaho without someone bringing up literacy, Kevin, mm-hmm. because, because the, the data is pretty clear on this. Kids who come up in a home with poverty are, and, and, and our Sammy Edge just wrote a story about this, the struggles that students in poverty face, and sometimes it, you just don't see it. I, when I taught school, I was, I was a high school English teacher before I, before I came to Ed News, and it was a very real thing. Um, I, I could tell many of those kids who, who, had, who, had, uh, who were disadvantaged, just you could tell they lacked many of the resources. And so that starts at a young age. The experts will tell you that that starts at a young age. Kids who are not disadvantaged, they, they have opportunities that those disadvantaged kids just don't have, including in the summertime, after school, uh, parents and, and a, a stability to read to the kids. And so you can't talk about this issue without uh, literacy coming up in some shape or form. And, and that is one of the first things that they pointed to in Murtaugh. This is a district, they'll tell you it's not a coincidence that, they're, that they have high test scores despite their high poverty because they've had both a, an all-day kindergarten program and a preschool program in that district for, for well over a decade. And, and just say that that solidifies and helps those kids who are coming in who are in poverty so much, be, not just academically, but it prepares them too. It's getting, this is what they say. I talked to a kindergarten teacher there who said, I don't have to worry about the kids coming in and, and crying or not knowing how to get into a line or not knowing how to work in a little group because they already did that in preschool. So they're getting it before kindergarten and then it's really getting emphasized again in kindergarten because it's an all day kindergarten program. And the politics of this, just to kind of recap, I mean, Again, with the governor's literacy initiative, one of the options that's really been touted, and I'll be really curious to see what the numbers uh, show heading into the new school year, is all-day kindergarten. I mean, the funding can be used for all-day kindergarten, and I'll be really curious to see how many schools take up that idea. But pre-K is still something the state does not fund. So Murtaugh and other schools that offer it have to figure out some way to do it without state dollars. Right, and, and you've seen some, some extra money come through this year. I just was on the phone with Idaho Falls School District. They're going to be uh, implementing a, an all-day kindergarten program in at least one of their elementary schools there, and that's because of some extra literacy money from the state. I think our Sammy Edge, again, uh, reported on this, too, in the, in the Treasure Valley, that uh, more of those programs are popping up throughout the state. But you're right. I mean, it's, there's so many districts that, don't, that still don't have all-day kindergarten. Again, that was Idaho Education News reporter Devin Bodkin. Idaho Education News' Sammy Edge went to a high-performing, high-poverty school outside of Seattle and also tracked a high school graduate in Caldwell who got her diploma last month overcoming some personal challenges. Here's what she found. Sammy, you went to Evergreen Elementary School in Spanaway, Washington, south of Seattle. What are they doing there, and what struck you as you uh, toured the school? Sure. 
Uh, Evergreen is K through five right now. It used to be a K through six school, but they operate on a model called No Excuses University, uh, which is not unique to Evergreen. It's a national model, education model, I would call it. It um, revolves around things like using data to gauge student achievement. And the end goal of the project is really to uh, make sure that every student has their focus on college. No mm -hmm. Excuses University. Right. No excuses is their central philosophy, and it's fascinating to watch that play out in the hallways of a school. How, how does it play out? I mean, what does that mean? How do they make no excuses work on the ground? Certainly. Uh, one example is that every student has to turn in their homework. Mm -hmm. If you don't turn in your homework, you stay in at lunch and you do your homework. The no excuses, you know, no, no excuses, excuses for not doing your homework. Right. And that's really interesting when you have a population of kids who I believe it's just under 70% um, free and reduced lunch rates. Mm -hmm. So they're students who have a lot of barriers in their home lives, um, but the teachers don't let them use that as an excuse. And they give them the resources that they need so that those factors won't be excuses. It struck me too as I read the story that a lot of it is really personalized approach between the teachers and, and the students. I and mean, maybe think about what could be done in a small school in rural Idaho. I mean, we're, we're talking about if a kid doesn't have an alarm clock, you give them an alarm clock. If a kid doesn't show up, you drive to the home and you, you pick them up or you, you check in on them. I mean, this is really, you know, individualized attention that these students are getting along the way. Certainly, and I'm new to education coverage, so I haven't been in hundreds of schools yet, but I would imagine that, especially in elementary school, teachers have a very personal relationship with you know the 30 kids in their class for a year. Mm -hmm. They know what little Johnny is struggling with at home, so it's a mm -hmm. matter of being willing to devote the resources and the time to every kid so that you can treat them equally, regardless of their background, and make sure that they are getting all of their assignments in and they have the support they need and they're understanding lessons, that mm -hmm. sort of thing. It, it struck me too, as we do a series like this and we're looking for best practices in other communities, uh, practices that could be applied elsewhere, it struck me as I read the story that this wasn't just a shock to the system for parents and kids, but it was a, a shock to the system for educators there. I mean, it was a different way of approaching students and approaching student expectations, and it wasn't for everybody. Certainly. Evergreen 15 years ago, according to the teachers, was dead last in their school district. One teacher I talked to said it was really just considered the armpit of the district. Nobody would even want to sub there. It was so bad. And what's fascinating about this, and one thing I really appreciate about the story, is that the teachers who are there now who push through this change are the same teachers that were teaching there 15 years mm -hmm. ago. They've really bought in and they've really embraced it. They really bought in and what I heard from them was that they've always cared about doing well for their students but they weren't doing it efficiently mm -hmm. and they weren't working building wide to make sure that everybody had the same expectations and were enforcing the same expectations. So it gave the teachers kind of a framework for doing what they wanted to do but couldn't really figure out how to get done. Absolutely. It was a catalyst for buy-in and collaboration across the building. But to switch to no excuses was, was really jarring for some of the teachers. Um, and it resulted in some turnover, it sounds like. It certainly did. And, and as I understand it, every year they still have a couple of teachers, maybe one or two a year, who 
aren't aren't on board with the philosophy and don't end up staying. Um, teachers were telling me that in the beginning they had to have conversations with one another and tell each other to stop making excuses. Mm-hmm. They track data very closely, for example, and they post the data, their classroom test scores, um, as, a, as a cohesive set, not everybody's individual scores, but they post classroom test scores on the walls outside of their class. And teachers will hold each other accountable if they're not meeting standards and ask, okay, what are you doing? How can we improve this? And this is some tough conversation sometimes, teacher to teacher. Absolutely, absolutely. The, to, to stand up in a staff meeting and say, you're making excuses, that's a hard thing to do. Yeah. I don't want to do it. It's, it's, it's a hard thing to say. It's a hard thing to hear. But it sounds like it's part of the culture change that they did there. So that's a grade school. And, and that's kind of trying to instill a, a different mindset in grade school students. Another story you did for the series profiled a high school graduate, a, a graduate in Caldwell High School who has overcome a lot of these obstacles that uh, are central to this entire series. It was, it was a really, really good profile, really moving. Tell us about her. Certainly. Um, I spent a lot of time with a girl named Elise. She just graduated from Caldwell High and hopes to be an EMT. Um, she kind of bounced around schools in Boise for a lot of her life, which I think is probably pretty typical for kids who live in families that have to move frequently to find housing that mm-hmm. they can afford. She at one point switched school districts in the middle of high school. Um, that's got to be a pretty jarring shock. Yeah. It, she said it, it took a toll on her grades because she had to transfer credits and that didn't go entirely smoothly. Um, she at one point moved states and had to make the decision to leave her family and come back and, and live with other people to finish at Caldwell High. Right. I mean, that was an amazing piece of the story was that she moved back to Caldwell. She moved in with... With, with, with her boyfriend's with family. family. Right. Yeah. I mean, left her, you know, her blood relatives behind partly to just be at a school that she was comfortable with where she felt like she could succeed. Mm-hmm. And one interesting thing for me is she really felt strongly about the CNA program. And that's mm-hmm. one of the reasons that she was so adamant that she wanted to come back and finish that because she wants to go into healthcare, and that was an important thing for her. It, it kind of humanizes a, a big topic that we're dealing with a lot in, as we talk about post-secondary education, we talk about post-secondary outcomes, this uh, emphasis on career technical. I mean, for, for her, the career technical aspect, the CNA program, really resonated. I mean, this is where she decided what she wanted to do with her life, it sounds like. Yeah. And another thing, when we talk about students going on to college and, and the challenges that they face, she, up until last week, uh, was still a minor, pretty much living on her own, didn't have a lot of access to information uh, that she would need to fill out FAFSA forms for federal scholarships. Mm -hmm. And she was telling me every week when I visited with her, there was sort of a new hurdle to getting any FAFSA money. It it felt like the whole story was a story of there were so many places along the way that she could have fallen through the cracks or she could have said, this is just too much. I, I can't do this. I mean, so many places where this story could have taken that turn, but she she plowed through. She did, and one thing that I've heard consistently from educators and from students is that, especially for kids who have a lot of instability at home, it's really important to have 
at least one stable adult in your life. Mm -hmm. And for her, there have been a few. Her grandparents have always helped her and been sort of stable figures. And then there was a teacher in high school at Caldwell High who she really credits with helping her push through and uh, making sure that she got to the end. And that's where it came from for her. You know, it was adult role models really instilling in her the idea of, you know, really a no excuses mindset in her life where it's like you you're, you can do this and you have to do this. Yeah, what really struck me about Elise is something you brought up earlier was she had plenty of excuses. She had plenty of reasons not to show up at school or not to turn in her homework. And whatever she had to do, she made sure that she got the work done. She was in class participating. Again, that was Idaho Education News reporter Sammy Edge. There's much more to this series than we can get to in this week's podcast, so please go to idolednews.org and check out the entire series. You can click to all of the stories from the banner on the top of our homepage. That's going to wrap up this week's edition of the Extra Credit Podcast. I want to thank you for joining me and for listening in and getting caught up on the week. And remember, you can stay current on everything that's going on in education policy and education politics at idolednews.org. You can follow us on Twitter for breaking news, and you can follow us on our Facebook page and join the conversation there. We'll have a busy week again next week. Governor Little's Education Task Force will continue its work. The first subcommittee meeting is scheduled to begin on Tuesday, and we'll be there for that. And we'll have full coverage of that meeting and full coverage of everything else that's going on in education. But first, I'm ducking away for a long weekend of my own, and yes, my long weekend also involves mountains. Not the Himalayas, but Galena Summit. So if you're running Sawtooth Relay, and you're running Sawtooth Relay at the ungodly start time of 3.15 like I am, hope to see you out there. Have fun, and have a safe run, and have a good weekend no matter what you're doing. And do come back next Friday for another edition of the Extra Credit Podcast. I'm Kevin Richard. Have a good week.